when you find your place there in Ezekiel 25, hold your finger there and turn just a few pages to the left back to chapter 21. I'm going to read a few verses by way of introduction that hopefully will help to give us some historical context to what we're entering into as we turn to chapter 25. When you have your place there and your fingers in all the right places and, um, uh, and everything, won't you join me in honor of the reading of God's word, standing on your feet, if you're able, of course. Heard a lot of groans there. When <laughs> Ezekiel 21, verse 19. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. Sorry, I started reading in verse 21. Verse 19. As for you, son of man, no one said anything. As for you, son of man, mark two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. Both of them shall come from the same land. And make a signpost, make it at the head of the way to a city. Mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbah of the Ammonites and Judah into Jerusalem, the fortified. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He shakes the arrows He consults the teraphim. He looks at the liver. Into his right hand comes the divination for Jerusalem to set battering rams, to open the mouth with murder, to lift up the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to cast up mounds, to build siege towers. We'll pause there and ask the Lord to help us understand what in the world is going on. Right, Father, thank you for your word and for this evening where we gather together to sit under the teaching of your scriptures. Help us to understand this marvelous book, uh, but more than that, help us to understand you, your character, your person, um, your, your intentions, your plans for the world. Help us to know you better, not just know more things about your Bible. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. What's going on here? Right? What in the world is going on here? Ezekiel 21. What is happening? If you can, try with me to imagine... the king of Babylon standing at a fork in the road. There's King Nebuchadnezzar, two paths. His army behind him. This way leads to the capital city of the people of Ammon. This way leads to the capital city of the people of Israel, Jerusalem. He uses divination 
and says it looks at the liver and there's all right shaking arrows and looking at livers. And from this form of divination comes the answer, go to Jerusalem and besiege it. It's a strange thing, but what we recognize is that the Lord is directing the steps of this idolatrous king, Nebuchadnezzar, to go and be the hand of discipline against his rebellious children, Israel. Right? We get that much. But what's going on with the, the part and the two paths? Here's the idea that we're going to enter into tonight. First, God conducts the army of Babylon to go be the hand of discipline against Israel. After that time, we read and we understand both biblically and historically that the people of Ammon, which have been longtime enemies of Israel, they celebrate. They celebrated the fall of Jerusalem, the fall of their enemy. And then Josephus tells us that five years later, Nebuchadnezzar takes that same army and mounts it against the capital city of Ammon. First Jerusalem, then the capital city of the people of Ammon. There's a reason for this, which we're going to explore in detail tonight. The reason, the message, the meaning, the purpose. But it's important for us to understand Historically, these things happened as we turn to chapter 25 and God begins to prophesy against these very people. So hold that in your mind as we turn over to chapter 25. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward the Ammonites and prophesy against them. All right, set your face. Remember, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And the phrase that we've been using in this study is that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to deal, to deal with sin. Yes, okay. Like, it's not enthusiastic, but it's there. It's deep, deep, deep in there. He's going to deal with sin. Set your face toward the Ammonites. What's going on? God's going to deal with sin. Right? So set your face toward the Ammonites. Prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God. So apparently the Ammonites, there are those among the people of Ammon who are among the exiles of Israel in Babylon. Like the people of Ammon, there are those left in the city and there are those captive. Just like Israel has those left in the city and those captive. So speak, Ezekiel, not to the people of Coolwood, but to the people of Huntersville. Right? Say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, aha, over my sanctuary when it was profaned. 
and over the land of Israel when it was made desolate, and over the house of Judah when they went into exile. We actually have historical record that, that the people of Ammon made a contract with Nebuchadnezzar after he destroyed Jerusalem in the third and final invasion. They celebrated and made a pact with Nebuchadnezzar. And then five years later, Nebuchadnezzar went, and that's what's being prophesied. Therefore, verse 4, Behold, I am handing you over to the people of the east for a possession, and they shall set their encampments among you and make their dwellings in your midst. They shall eat your fruit and shall drink your milk. I will make Rabbah, that's their Jerusalem, a pasture for camels, and Ammon a flock, uh, fold for flocks. Then you will know that I am the Lord." For thus says the Lord God, because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with all the malice within your soul against the land of Israel. Therefore, behold, I have stretched out my hand against you and will hand you over as plunder to the nations and I will cut you off from the peoples and make you perish out of the countries. I will destroy you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. The people of Ammon are the descendants of one of Lot's daughters in that uh, troubling encounter after Sodom and Gomorrah. I won't go into any further description, but those of you who need to understand know the story well. Verse 8, thus says the Lord God, because Moab, the descendants of the other of Lot's daughters, Ammon and Moab, because Moab and Seir said, Behold, the house of Judah is like all the other nations. Therefore, I will lay open the flank of Moab from the cities, from its cities on its frontier, the glory of the country, Beth Jeshemoth, Baal Maon, and Kiriathim. I will give it along with the Ammonites to the people of the east as a possession that the Ammonites may be remembered no more among the nations. And I will execute judgments upon Moab. Then they will know that I am the Lord. It's ominous, isn't it? Prophesy against Edom, the descendants of Esau. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and Cut off from it man and beast, and I will make it desolate. From Teman even to Dedan, they shall fall by the sword. And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel, and they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath, and they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. A lot of people are about to get it, huh? Verse 15, thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines, who are ancient descendants of Ham... One of Noah's three sons. Ham who disgraced his father's nakedness. Descendants of Ham, descendants of Nimrod. They would go on to, to, to be the eventual descendants, uh, give birth to the people called the Philistines. Because the Philistines acted revengefully and took, re- took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy in never-ending enmity. Read First and Second Samuel. 
right? Never-ending enmity with Israel were the Philistines. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines and I will cut off the Cherethites and destroy the rest of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. Chapter 25 starts what's called an intermezzo. Spelled without a T, two Zs. An intermezzo is like an intermission. So you have a play and you have an intermission. An intermezzo, though, unlike an intermission, an intermission is a break from all the action. An, inter- an intermezzo is a, a performance that is unrelated, not part of the play, but it's performed in between two acts of a play. This intermezzo that begins in chapter 25 goes all the way to chapter 32. You notice the sharp shift in attention. Chapters 1 through 24 is filled with with warnings and prophecies for the people of Israel. Judgment is coming, right? The fall of Jerusalem is coming. You're in captivity because of your sinfulness. God is warning his children, bringing the word of conviction through the mouth of his servant, calling on them to repent, but they simply wouldn't listen. Warning them, warning them, warning them. Right up to chapter 24, which was what? D-Day, right? The invasion of Jerusalem is upon us. The king stood at the crossroads and shook the arrows. And I, the Lord, gave him the answer. Jerusalem it is. Warning, 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 judgment. Pause in the action. Pause in God's dealing with Israel. Here comes Uh, an intermezzo, a performance between the two acts that says also God is going to deal with those outside the family. That's what's going on here. It's critical that we just take a hold of this or else the next eight chapters, 25 through 32, they don't make any sense. Now, apart from God is dealing with Israel, now God is dealing with the nations. We read that chapter as 21st century Americans, Ezekiel chapter 25, Ammon and Moab and the Philistines, and we go, why is this here? Does anyone want to, like, guess? (laughs) What's this here for? Right, like, John 3.16, man, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. He's just, he's just. Yeah. And so, wrath, right? Rain, whether it's the rain of fire or it's the rain of nourishment, right? It falls on the just and the unjust. This is a fascinating picture that's being painted here for us in the middle of this story where God is dealing with the judgment or the, excuse me, he's dealing with the sin of his children, his people. 
1 Peter 4, 17 says, Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it means that God first deals with his children. First. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Just like a father would first discipline his own son. But, if one of your sons was acting out, I think you would be okay if I were to put my hand on his shoulder and say, hey, pal, that's not the way. Let's go find your dad. Jordan, where are you? Right? right no, I'm kidding. I've got, <laughs> this is, in, in my fictitious scenario, Mark is acting out. Mark is doing really good. No, but you guys would, you'd be okay with me. Because why? Well, because you, you've seen me discipline my children and the fruit of that labor. You'd be all right if I talked to your son. But you certainly won't be all right if I talk to your son while my kids are doing cartwheels through the pews and the aisles, right? So the, the father deals with his own children, then he... That's why Paul says, uh, why do you judge those outside the church? Judge those inside the church. It's in 1 Corinthians 11, I think. You are to judge each other in, in, the, in the grandest of ways. To say, hey, is that healthy? Hey, is that good? The, the end result of that behavior, that habit, that demeanor is not, is not life and sanctification. It's sin. That's judgment. It's the best type. A brother to a brother, a sister to a sister. And that's what Paul says we're to do. We're not to apply biblical standards to those who are outside the text of Scripture. They need to know Jesus first. Then they're obliged to obey him. So Paul says you judge each other, you don't judge the world. It's the same thing. God deals with the children. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Why? Well, because the children know better. The children know the rules. The kids running around outside, they don't know the rules. But the kids who grow up inside the house, they know the rules. And so they are punished for breaking the rules. But Tommy outside is breaking the rules. Tommy doesn't live here. You know the rules. You're breaking the rules. I deal with you. This is the big picture of this section in Ezekiel. God is punishing Israel because they know the rules. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. But what did they do? Chapter 16 of Ezekiel, like an unfaithful bride, went out with all the other gods. They knew the rules and they broke the rules. But what about all the idolatry of those nations? God says, I'm dealing with you first, son. This is the picture of this whole section. He gave Israel his law. He didn't give Egypt his law. He gave it to Israel. They broke it, and he will judge them first. And he has. The king of Babylon stands at the fork in the road. He shakes the arrows. Where does God send the hand of discipline? To his children, right? They knew the rules. They broke them, and God judges them first. The same thing, friends, happens in the church. In the, in the most appropriate of ways, we need to think of it this way. While we live on earth, 
under his grace, God judges us. Is that how you feel too? God judges us. We are punished for our sin. And you say, whoa, pastor, hang on now. <laughs> right? The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He was punished for our sins. Right? But when you sin... What's that thing that happens? What is it? Go ahead. Consequences? Sure. Conviction. Guilty conscience. Heaviness of heart. Brokenness of, of, of peace and mind. And you lay your head down to go to sleep and you... Oh, man. And all of a sudden, remember that? God's punishing, right? When my children are having a rough day in school, I come home with the hammer of judgment. You know what I mean? Sometimes it all it takes is a word. If I have to come home, you're going to have a bad day, pal. Phone doesn't ring the rest of the day, right? What am I doing? I'm willing to and have punish my children. When we are placed under church discipline. The elders have to do this on a regular basis. We have to contact church members and say, listen, you've been gone, you've been absent, you've been, there's no record of attending, no record of giving, no record of an event of serving, no, nothing. You're, you've been gone. And the covenant says you will be faithful to the assembly. There's no good reason. We know there's no good reason. We've talked with you. We've waited. We ha we're placing you in a status called inactive. It means you can't vote. It means you don't have a deacon. It means you don't, you don't qualify for benevolence if you run into hard times because you've distanced yourself from the church. You've given us no choice but to punish. Because as a Christian who joined this church, you agree with the biblical precedent for what that requires for their good. Not to keep them away, but to draw them back. A father doesn't discipline his son so that he'll go away, but it's so that he'll come back. So God judges us on this side of eternity while we live under grace with conviction, when we sit under the teaching of the word. I just heard it again recently. It's happened a lot, but I just heard it again recently. Pastor, that, that, was, that was convicting, you know. Toes got stepped on. This week I took action. This week I wrote this. This week I did this, right? Because why? Because the word is convicting. That's God's judgment. His, he's spanking his children to bring them back. Even sometimes, God allows painful and humbling things to come upon us. That's what Stan was talking about, consequences. And the reason is just like that of Israel, because we know better. We have his word, we have his spirit. We know better, and he deals with us first. But of course, why does God punish? Why does he discipline? Why does he admonish through that conviction of the 
proclaimed word is so that we will learn to walk and talk like Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. What's that? Discipline now to avoid discipline later. That is the church spurring one another along to repentance and the pursuit of holiness. 1 Peter 1, as he who called you is holy, so also you be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Judged ourselves truly, Paul calls for us to do. Judge ourselves truly. Spur each other on. Hebrews 10, spurring one another along to love and to good works. And he does this so that we will fulfill his purposes for us on earth. We talked about it on Sunday. What is the will of God? First Thessalonians 4. This is the Lord's will, your sanctification. And again, Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. This is that golden chain, but to do what? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's our purpose. So God judges us now under grace. He punishes us now under grace in order that we might fulfill our purpose. Israel was given a purpose. Deuteronomy chapter 4 is this wonderful section. In, in chapter 4, verse 6, it basically says that, that if you live by this law, Israel, the nations of the world, like Ammon and Moab and the Philistines, they will look at your conduct and they'll say, wow, what a wise and awesome God you must have to give you a law as sophisticated and brilliant as this to govern your lives. Their purpose was to live in such a way that that God's promise to Abraham would come, come true long before Jesus, that they would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Your descendants will be a blessing to the nations of the earth. They should have been so as his people living in his land under his law, and the nations would go, wow. And it worked a little bit, right? The queen of Sheba traveled, and she sat down with Solomon, and she said, wow, where did you, where did you get that? And I imagine Solomon was like, <laughs> I was like 19, you know what I mean? I was just the king for like a day, and I was like, okay, seriously, <laughs> I got... I got a kingdom, my dad was a rock star, I, I, got, I got a big job. Lord says, what do you want? Give me wisdom, right? And the, the foreign nations came and said, wow, wow, right? But it was a blip. That's a blip. For the majority, for the overwhelming majority of the time, Israel occupied the promised land, they ignored the Sabbath. We did the math a couple of weeks ago, I fudged my numbers live and no one corrected me. I, did, I added like four and three and came up with six. It was so bad. And you guys are gracious, you know. That. But essentially the math goes like this. For 500 of the 900 years that Israel lived in the land, this is basically from judges to the Babylonian captivity, they ignored the Sabbath rest year. They ignored it for 500 out of 900. And that's to go to the Babylonian captivity, which is the the second 
If you take it up to the Assyrian invasion and captivity, it's even less. It's like 500 out of 700 those Sabbath years were ignored. So it was a blip that they did what Deuteronomy 4 describes, how they'll, they'll do what? They'll bring glory to God by their conduct, by their actions, by their way of life. So what's going on here in Ezekiel 25? Why is this here? Why would we, the New Testament church, read it and study it? Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. But it doesn't end there. Better to be judged on this side of eternity unto repentance than to be judged on the other side of eternity unto eternal death. When we look at the world, both in our day and in the ancient day, the wicked seem to get away with their wickedness scot-free. Right? They seem to sleep easy at night. They lie and have no problem about it, right? I mean, we've all listened to every politician talk, right? There might be a few honest ones, but they're, whew. it's like the Sabbath rest in Israel, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're few and far between. You know, the wicked seem to get away with their wickedness. They enrich themselves with their lies, and they get away with it. Meanwhile, if you and I go six miles per hour over, we're looking over our shoulder like, uh-oh, are those blue lights for me? They're not bothered by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't dwell in them or with them. He dwells inside of his church. But in the final judgment, they will be judged. And of course, that judgment is far worse than the disciplining rod of God, the Father. Judgment begins with the house of God, but it eventually gets to those outside of it. The purpose then of God's judgment on his house is to correct their behavior. Here's the land. Here's centuries to live in it. Kings and kings, most of whom were wicked idolaters that led the people to be wicked idolaters. And God says, okay, right? Time for a spanking, right? Off to Babylon you go. The land will have its rest. The purpose of God's judgment is to correct the behavior. That's on his house. The purpose of God's judgment for those outside his house is to uphold his holiness and his perfect justice. But it wasn't his intent. That wasn't the purpose of the lake of fire. Right? We talked about this on Sunday. It was created for the devil and his minions. And so what do we see in chapter 25? Well, God has judged the sins of the house of Israel. Jerusalem has fallen. That happened at the end of chapter 24. That's done. Now that God has dealt with his house, now he turns to those outside of his house. The people of Israel are held captive. They are now sitting, if you will, under Ezekiel's teaching, um, and their, their last hopes have been dashed. Remember, they were hoping that the Egyptians who Zedekiah hired would fight against Babylon and free them. They were hoping for this salvation from somewhere other than God, but salvation comes only through repentance, Ezekiel teaches us, right? And so now here they are. Their last hope is destroyed. The temple lays in ruins. The, the news has come 
to the captives, maybe fresh waves of captives are coming in from the battlefield. Their city lays in ruins, thousand miles away, their enemies triumph over them. The people of Ammon say, aha, right? And in the end, this judgment of God will lead Israel to repentance. We see it recorded in like Ezra, Nehemiah, the national prayers of Daniel. Nehemiah crying out, confessing the sin of generations. We see it in the national mourning in Nehemiah 8, the people of God weeping under the the conviction of the Spirit as the word is read aloud. God's discipline led them to repentance. He dealt with his house. The house of God, you could say Israel, for the next several hundred years, they forsook their idols and they worshipped him alone. The second temple period was a period of, of, um, of intense rededication. It was still happening. There was still some, you know. But I mean, that's how our Pharisees came about. It was in that second temple period, after the temple was rebuilt, before Jesus. This intense commitment. The Pharisees believed that every one of the Israelites should live under the Levitical law. And they imposed that on themselves and on others in their teaching. An intense dedication to the Lord. Some of it was misunderstood. Some of it was genuine. Think about Zechariah and his wife who gave birth to John the Baptist. They were called righteous. Mary, who was called, you know, full of grace, right? Innocent. Joseph, who was faithful. Or the the priest who was at the temple when Jesus was brought uh, after his birth and he and he holds him up and he says, I've seen the salvation of the Lord. Or the old woman who was praying at the temple, prophesying that the Son of Man has come. There were those in Israel who had worshipped God and him alone, who had been raised in a tradition in their families for probably hundreds of years after the captivity. It worked, you might say. Right? God dealt with his children. But... After God had dealt with his children, then he renders his judgment on the nations, those outside his house. This whole section points to this. It's an analogy, friends. It's a picture of the way that God works and his will in judging the world. What do we do with this? In the weeks that we'll spend in this section, we'll explore possible interpretations, what these things might mean eschatologically. But first, I want us to appreciate them devotionally. So I hope over the next couple of weeks, if you're taking notes, we'll do three things. Number one, we'll gain insight into the way of things. And that's a, uh, it's not a very flowery phrase. It's very sort of plain. But that's the best way I could think of to say it. We're, we're, we want to gain insight into the way of things, meaning the way of the world and what God is doing broad scale. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15. You guys might remember this from our study. In my vain life, the preacher says, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. That's messed up. Osteen said, do this and you'll live healthy and happy and rich. What's going on here? 
In my life, I've seen everything. A righteous man perishing, a wicked man prolonging, succeeding. When we observe that in our own lives, in our own circumstances, when we observe that in the history books or what's happening with various politicians, we need to not be bewildered by that, friends. We need to look to Ezekiel chapter 25 and say, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Their consequences are coming. They seem to prosper. Let's gain insight to the way of things. This is God's business. This is what he does. He deals with his children, then he deals with those outside. Does that make sense? Judgment begins with the house of God, but it doesn't end there. The second thing I'd like to believe that we'll gain from this time in this obscure, strange, just wrath and vengeance, laments, is that we'll gain insight, number two, into his discipline. The writer of Hebrews quotes the old Proverbs, chapter 12, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. George, my father-in-law, likes to ask my kids, especially when they were younger, did you get your spanking today? They'd say, no, Pop. He'd say, well, come on. Got to get your spanking so your skin will be loose so you can grow. <laughs> and they'll reach for them and they start laughing and screaming. And... It's almost like that. You come into the family of God. Welcome. Awesome. Praise God. You've confessed your sin and your utter need for a Savior. Welcome into the family. What do I do now? Well, now you begin to realize what a rotten piece of human garbage you are. Right? And how you reinforce that almost every second of every day. And from this moment until the moment God calls you home, you're gonna, it's, just, it's just one endless slap in the face as you realize just how much you sin. Like, man, so for like, there's 30 years, it's just more like realizing how sinful I am. Yeah, yeah, but you'll get better, don't worry. <laughs> It just goes from like 100% of the time to like 90% of the time, 80% of the time. And then some of you precious saints who are like in your 70s and 80s, I swear, like you've got it figured out, you know? Like you walk on clouds, you know? Yeah. It's like 10% of the time maybe you sin. And I don't see it, you know? But that's it. Welcome to the family. You got your, got your spanking today? Hopefully in this we'll gain some insight into the discipline of the Lord. It has come to me and I have come to a point by God's grace um, that I can say about the conviction of the Spirit the, the same thing that David says about God's law. He says, oh, I love your law and I meditate on your law day and night. It is possible, friends, that we, we can learn to lean in to God's conviction such that when we, when we come under that sense of conviction over our words or over our demeanor, over our thoughts or our motives, we, we, are, we mourn and then we smile because we're glad. Better for the Lord to point it out to us than for us to just keep on in it, right? And we lean into the conviction of the Spirit and we're glad for it. I love your law. I love your conviction. 
I believe it takes, it takes time to come to that place. I think it takes repetition. I think it takes a lot of conviction of sin and a lot of realization of grossness and a lot of coming to terms with, with motives that you don't want to admit are mixed and impure and realize, no, they're selfish motives. And then looking back 10, 12, 15 years or whatever and going, man, 15 years ago, I was really selfish. I thought I was really others-centered, but I was totally me-centered. And you just, uh, uh, right? And eventually you begin to go, oh, thank you, Lord, for showing this to me. I wouldn't want to keep going like that. It takes time and repetition, though, I think, to get to the point where we lean in like that to the sanctifying purposes of the Lord. When you exercise hard, like when you, when you do something really strenuous, I'm not talking about a valet jog, you know what I mean? Let me get you Mercedes, right? Like, no, I'm talking about hard exercise, picking up heavy things, sprinting, your heart rate is soaring. When, when you do that for a sustained period of time, Something happens in your muscles, technically speaking. You get this burning sensation. You know what I'm talking about? You feel like your legs are on fire or your bulging, massive biceps are on fire. Ryan knows what I'm talking about. He's got them. (laughs) It just burns, right? That's what happens when you're working the muscle so hard your body can't get enough oxygen to the muscle to supply it. When you're just jogging for the Mercedes, oxygen is supplying the muscles. They're doing fine, but when you're pushing it hard, your body can't get enough oxygen to those muscles, and they begin to break down, and lactic acid is produced, and that's what creates that burn sensation. Now, too often, when we feel that in strenuous activity, we stop. When you're running and your legs start burning, you slow down. Why? It hurts. That's pain. Let me stop. Let me rest. Let me try a different approach. But actually, what you learn in training, muscle building, running, is that that burn is good. That burn is your friend. That lactic acid burn is the body signaling to itself that the muscle needs to be repaired And as most people know, muscles that get damaged through strain and hard work, they grow back stronger. The same can be said of our relationship with God. He disciplines us, and that discipline hurts. And we think, that's unpleasant. Let me get away from it. This happens when we're quiet, when we're praying, when we're listening to a sermon, and, and here comes that ringing, burning voice of conviction, right? You haven't apologized for that, you know. Why'd you speak to your wife that way? And when you're quiet, you know, in the, in the dark moments of, of a, a sleepless night or in the quiet moments of a sermon, and the tendency is to escape that voice. It's to get away from it. This sometimes also happens when we walk through tragic and painful experiences in life. We've got friends. I've got, a, I've got a, a good friend. And every time something hard happens, something stressful, someone is sick, or wife is this, or mom is that, 
He reaches for the bottle. And it's a habitual just escapism. He doesn't want to deal with it. He wants to get away. We do it too. Maybe not alcohol. Maybe it's relationships, entertainment. Anything to distract us from the pain of having to deal with that voice of conviction. And so we're in the car and it's quiet and the the word is ringing in our ears and we'll do what? Turn that radio on. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear that voice. I don't want to deal with that sin. Our husband or our wife says to us, hey, was that the right way to deal with that moment? And you, and you go, what do you do? I got to go, go fix something, right? I got to go clean the car. I got to go build a chicken coop, you know? Get away from the voice of conviction. But what does Scripture tell us? Scripture tells us that the Father disciplines those he loves. Yeah. And he is using all these things, including tragic and painful things, to work out in the end for our good. And so what is good for us, friends? Romans 8:28. God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What is good for you? What's good for us? What's truly for our like what is actually good? Is it is it more cash in the bank? Right? Is it more health? What's actually, if you break it down, you get past all the superfluous things that will burn and moth eat them and, and rust eats them away and, right, you get past all of it. What's ultimately good? Well, no, it's what's, what's good for us? Sanctification. It's Christ-likeness. It's the desire of the Father that you produce much fruit and that fruit should remain. That means the activity of your life will actually stand the test of God's purifying gaze of fire. And on the other side of that blowtorch, there's something you actually did that was good and will stand for all of eternity. Something that was done without mixed motives and without selfishness from a pure heart, pure generosity, pure love, pure sacrifice. You can do that because of Christ in you. And says, Jesus says, the will of God is that you produce a lot of fruit like that. And so God is working all these things for your good so that you will make those things do those things, speak those words, give those gifts, have those actions that will stand the test of God's penetrating gaze. He can see through all of our bloviating friends, right? We might be fooling everybody else. We're not fooling God. He disciplines those he loves for our good so that our fruit will remain and we fulfill our purpose. And so be comforted, friends, in tragedy, in discipline, in conviction. Lean into it the way that the the bodybuilders lean into the pain of lifting weights. That sinking feeling of conviction is is your friend. It's for your good. It's for your Christ-likeness. And in the end, you'll find yourself smiling at the tender but firm hand of God as he disciplines you. You will... Grow and learn to love it, knowing that he's sharpening you, honing you for your purpose to bring him greater glory. 
And so that's the second thing. I hope that we'll gain insight into the discipline of God. And the third thing would be that we gain a passion to warn the lost. I don't have to, this isn't, I don't have to preach this to you, friends. You care. You care about the lost. I simply mean Ezekiel 25 through 32 uh, will remind us of this important point. Judgment begins with the house of God, but it doesn't end there. And so everyone who finds themselves outside the house of God, when that trumpet sounds and the end has come, then they'll get their judgment. All right, the devil comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. His aim is to take as many people with him as possible. How about we make it our aim to take as many people with us as possible? Right? Yeah. So Ezekiel 25 through 32, it reminds us that judgment is coming for the world who is outside the family of God. This certainly better not give us an air of superiority, but a deep mourning passion to warn the lost. I've seen, I've seen this in my lifetime, right? A righteous man perishes in his righteousness. A wicked man is prolonged in his evil doing. And it's our job to say, hey, those of you who are being prolonged in your evil doing, make no mistake, this will not last forever because of Ezekiel 25 through 32. If we, don't, if we don't gain these particular insights, friends, these chapters seem bonkers and pointless, okay? And that's, it'll be our job over the next couple of weeks as we journey through chapter 26 through 32, which is what we have left in this section, to keep that all-important emphasis in front of us and then seek to understand a little bit of what's going on with these prophecies. Does that sound like a fair deal? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how in it we find everything pertaining to life and godliness. You're teaching us continually. I love the way that one of my favorite authors, he, he calls the men of the Old Testament like mentors, mentors to him, teaching him how to live and showing him how to flee temptation and how to be bold and like mentors because the, the word is teaching him right now even. And so too here, Father, as we look to your word, you're teaching us. You're showing us your character and your, your absolute commitment to your word, to your promises, to your holiness And so may these things remind us who you are. May they they teach us about your good hand of discipline. May they give us a burning, continually burning desire to warn the lost that though it seems as, as if time will go on like this forever, there is a time of judgment that is coming. And so help us accordingly, we pray, for your glory, for our good, and for the fruit that will remain. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Good night.